Sean and I are delighted to have the opportunity to talk about uh, the centenary of the Tararua Tramping Club, which happened on this very day, the 3rd of July, 100 years ago in 1919. And it had occurred rather incongruously uh, in the showroom of a billiard table manufacturer's uh, business just a few hundred uh, metres away from here in Thorndon. The idea for a centennial history came out of our 2014 book, Tramping in New Zealand History. And uh, what also came out of that was, uh, in addition to sort of locating the advent of organised outdoor recreation right here in Wellington with the formation of the Tararua Tramping Club, that publication also sort of consolidated our credibility as tramping historians and gave us the confidence to put a proposal to the club, not just to write, but also to publish its centennial history. The club uh, deliberated on this. It held two votes of its membership. The main issue was whether it would be done from volunteers from within the club or by paid professionals from without. And in the end, the club opted for the latter, and we started work on this job in 2015. So it's been a five-year uh, project. Early on when we started giving draft chapters to the club for their consideration, it soon became clear to us that uh, most members had an expectation that their individual subjective experience of the club would be reflected in our account. Now this was entirely understandable, but with a membership of 700, obviously quite impossible. So in a curious sort of way that was liberating because when we realised that we couldn't tell any particular specific individual story, although we have included lots of individual recollections, uh, that freed us up to do what we wanted to do and that was to put the club in its national context. And by that, what we meant was two things. First of all, to very clearly establish why it was that the Tararua Tramping Club was responsible for the start and the successful uh, advocacy of outdoor recreation in New Zealand. But also to see how the broader uh, social and economic and political uh, developments over the past century had impacted on the club. And indeed, as you might expect, the club's history is a microcosm of what happened in New Zealand over the past 100 years. Another understanding that we came to quite early on in the process was that uh, once we started to look as, at the club as a family, and by that we don't mean the sort of narrow nuclear mum-dad and the perfect PSO favoured by advertisers, but more a sort of broad social tribal grouping that welcomes all comers, once we started looking at the club like that, it became clear to us that the club's history was much more compelling and intelligible now we know that in families people behave differently than they do in broader society and we also know that in family there are predictable crises such as generational successions and these aren't always handled as clearly and as cleanly as you might hope but that's very much what we found in the Tararua Tramping Club story. 
what Sean and I would like to do today is tell you a little bit about the club's history over the last hundred years, but there isn't obviously time to do the whole thing. So what we'd like to do is just really give you an idea of what it was like at the start and what it's like now on the cusp of its second century. And in between, we'll throw in a few vignettes of what the club was doing in that interim, interim time, and would like to do this by speaking to a series of images. So this PowerPoint presentation will last about 35 minutes, and we're very happy to take your questions after that. And for anyone who's interested in looking at a copy of Leading the Way or purchasing one for $50, you can just talk to Carol in the turquoise uh, parker up the back at the end and uh, she will take care of you. Now, one of the things that the club uh, really understood from the outset that was important was the need for... Um, truck transport or collective transport to take people to the hills because when the club started in, the, uh, in 1919, obviously car ownership was very limited so you were reliant on public transport, ferries across the harbour, uh, buses and trams and trains but they didn't actually take you to the hills. So what we needed was something that would get you to the actual hill country. And here we see uh, Tararua Tramping Club group at the Upper Hutt Railway Station in the early 1920s. And as you can see, they're aboard an embryonic truck, which is going to take them from there to Kaitoki Road End. And from there, they walk over the hills to Smith's Creek in the Taranikau Valley, which is in the southern Tararuas. So that was key to the club's uh, success in its early years, but so too was a very important decision to admit women as members. Now this didn't happen at that meeting on the 3rd of July, but it happened very soon afterwards, and indeed it had to, because how could you have an organisation that excluded the wife of the founder, Fred Vossler, when she was such an important part of the early years of the club? But it was also broader than that. It was absolutely essential to uh, attract women members because all of the earlier outdoor organisations had failed to survive, and one of the reasons they had was, was because they were exclusive. For example, the New Zealand Alpine Club, which formed in 1891, was open only to gentlemen who were climbers. So in addition to having a gender restriction, you also had to be experienced. As a result, it languished and, and didn't really get going again until after the First World War. But the other thing about uh, having women as members was that uh, in addition to doubling the potential membership of the club, it also simply made it a lot more fun. But at the time, there was a slightly, uh, there was more than a slight prejudice against women in the outdoors. It was quite extreme, and it went beyond just the sort of clothing that they tried to wear, practical clothing. It also uh, related to this very Victorian concept of what a sort of woman's energy was like. And we're indebted to Charlotte MacDonald's 2011 book, Strong, Beautiful and Modern, which makes it very clear that in the Victorian era and over into the start of the 20th century, woman's energy was seen as finite. Therefore, you didn't want to waste it on sort of outdoor uh, exercise such as this when it needed to be preserved for life challenges such as childbirth. The club was 
very intent in its early years on making a movement. Uh, they wanted to see tramping clubs established throughout New Zealand and they were evangelical in this purpose. This letter here is from Oscar Balk, who is the president of the Otago Tramping Club, which was founded in 1923. He's writing to the founder of the Tararua Club, Fred Vossler, or the co-founder, and he's asking very practical questions about things to do with taking people out on, on walks. And that's the kind of help that the club was able to provide to people in other areas of New Zealand. We know, for example, that in 1925, when the Auckland Tramping Club formed, that a number of senior members travelled up there and offered advice on how they should go about it. The other thing that the club was evangelical about at this time was conservation. Now, I tend to think of conservation as a relatively modern concept that perhaps began in New Zealand with the Manapuri campaign. It's just not right. The conservation was really big in the 1920s, and the uh, Tararua Tramping Club publication of the time, they submitted articles to a magazine called New Zealand Life and Forest, is absolutely full of uh, passionate arguments articles arguing for the preservation of the bush uh, and scenic reserves. And they had a more specific campaign, and that was to try and prevent the corruption of Tongariro National Park. At the time, uh, the retired police commissioner, John Cullen, who's better known to you, I'm sure, as the notorious cop who invaded Te Urawera in 1916 to arrest, uh, without any provocation, the Maori prophet uh, Rua, well, in his retirement, John Cullen decided to make a project out of turning Tongariro National Park into some kind of southern Scotland by releasing grouse, and the grouse needed heather on which to survive. So the Tararua Tramping Club were very, very vociferous in their opposition to this, and they managed to stop it, but not before quite a lot of heather was planted, and of course, some of it is still there today. Another interesting aspect of the club in the 1920s was its very progressive uh, attitude to Māori and its close association with Māori. And this came about through the founders' um, friendships with Māori people, in particular May and Fred Vossler, who were very friendly with the family that lived on the north end of Kapiti Island. And that was Utata Parata, seen here on the right, and her husband Hona Weber and their large family. And each... Um, each sort of Christmas New Year period, large group from the club would go over to the island and stay there for about 10 days. They'd have a wonderful time swimming, exploring, fishing, and then at night there would be a lot of music and dancing, even romance, uh, with the considerable number of young Maori people who came across from Otaki, friends of the uh, now young adult children of Utata and Hona. And it was through Kapiti Island Māori that uh, the club made connection with Māori elsewhere, in particularly Māori up the Whanganui River. And every year, one of the highlights of the fixture list for the club was a trip down that river in big uh, canoes. These canoes were poled very skillfully by River Māori uh, using very large, long poles. And uh, once they got to a marae, they would stay there the night and the trampers would not only dine with their hosts, but then after dinner they would have singing and haka competitions. And the club had its own haka and at times Vossler felt that they performed better than their Maori hosts. <laughs> the 
the sort of demographic of the club in the 1920s was a little bit strange in that it had a lot of young members, uh, particularly young women, and it had a sort of level of middle-aged men, uh, Wellington professionals uh, and businessmen. And so there was quite a sort of avuncular relationship between these two groups, which was formalised in the names that they had for these men. They were called father or uncle, and here we see Uncle Bill Denton in conversation with Bessie James on the Whakapapa Bridge at Ruapehu. At the time, the civil service in Wellington was increasing rapidly, and it was inviting, or it was in, it was in uh, attracting young people from all around New Zealand who came here to work, and they had to work for five and a half days a week in these kind of office conditions, and then they lived in public service hostels, which were a bit like a cross between a boarding school and a boarding house. And so you can imagine how enticing it would be to have the prospect at the weekend of going off into the hills uh, within mixed company when you'd been putting up with these sort of conditions for most of the week. This fixture card from 1921, uh, a schedule of walks for ladies and gentlemen, uh, is interesting for the reason that three of the one, two, three, four, three of the five trips are listed as being led by May Vossler, and there was a very specific reason for that. That was that uh, young women weren't. Uh, well, it just wasn't thought proper for young women to go into the hills overnight in mixed company without a chaperone. And indeed, the club was absolutely vigilant about this in the first couple of years. They had two chaperones, May and another woman called Olive Byrne. And as you can see here, May is leading three of these trips, and that is to reassure parents uh, of these young women that their virtue would be protected in the hills. You see that one of the other trips there is led by Willie Field, the third one, and uh, he was the other founder of the club. He was quite a different person from Fred Vossler. Vossler was uh, 41 at the time, and he was the kind of hands-on chief guide out in the hills who showed people how to camp and tramp and ski and everything else. Field was 58 when the club was formed, and he was a senior politician, he didn't do anything near as much as Vossler in terms of uh, actually mentoring people in the hills. Um, but what he did do and what he was very good at doing was getting government money for huts and tracks in the southern Tararuas. That's not to say that Field didn't on occasions lead trip, trips. He did, for example, annually lead a trip to Kapakapanui, that big uh, broad-shouldered peak up behind Waikanae, which is where Field lived. And uh, indeed, Field also, like Vossler, had very close associations with Māori through people that he knew at Waikanae and also through his upbringing in the central North Island where his father was a surveyor. Here we see a large party climbing Ruapehu in 1921, and this became a regular fixture on the club's uh, annual outings, and that was a sort of winter sojourn up at Tongariro National Park, and if weather conditions permitted, invariably it involved a trip up to the summit of Mount Ruapehu. And taking that number of people in an alpine environment is an extremely challenging and risky thing to do, but May and Fred Vossler provided very effective leadership. So much so that the 
following year, 1922, they took a large party, I think it was 97, down to the Hermitage, and they stayed down there, uh, some of them in the Hermitage, and the rest of them camped in tents around it. And the highlight of that trip was climbing Mount Wakefield, which is that very prominent peak just across the Hooker River from the Hermitage. And here you can see a group of club members on the Cheval Ridge section of Mount Wakefield. Towards the end of the 1920s, the nature of club trips began to change from those very large excursions, such as the one to Mount Cook, to much smaller groups of people, and they were focused on less obvious landscapes. And a good example of this uh, occurred in 1929, when the club's legendary bushman, Joe Gibbs, took a party of, I think, maybe eight, on horseback from Top House, which, as you know, is near Lake um, Rotuiti, down to the Wairau Valley on the west coast. That trip's been recorded in a photograph album, uh, which is in the club's archive, and you can see from the beautiful calligraphy uh, of the title page here the sort of quality of annotation in that document. 1929 was also the year of the Wall Street crash, and by the early 1930s, New Zealand found itself in the grip of the Great Depression. And naturally, this curtailed going off to far-flung parts of the country like Mount Cook and even Tongariro, and instead, uh, a new generation of younger Tararua Tramping Club members focused attention on their home ranges, uh, the Rimataka Range and notably the Tararua Range, which of course the club took its name from. In the southern Tauruas, <coughs> 1930, there was one formidable problem left. This section of ridge here, the Tararua Peaks, very sheer-sided twin peaks, um, had not been traversed, and there were several determined attempts by these younger club members, and this picture was taken on the first successful traverse of those peaks. They realised they needed to take a rope, they took a rope with them, and later on, club members fixed a chain there, and it later became a chain ladder, and is now a ladder. The Northern Tararuas were comparatively lesser known, and groups of members, smaller groups of members, not the huge 97 parties of the 1920s, but smaller groups set off to explore the Northern Tararua ranges, and this included some, some really gun-woman trampers, some who'd come over from the Victoria College tramping group, and they even made all-woman trips and mid-winter trips, including some of the hardest of the time. At the same time, the club expanded its range of activities to include skiing, which was a relatively new sport in New Zealand. Joe Gibbs, a bushman uh, who was a member of the club, he'd built Field Hut in the 1920s on the Southern Crossing, and then in 1930 completed Kaim Hut up on the tops and club members would go up there skiing. The 1930s was a time of exceptional snowfalls in the range, and members would lug their skis all the way up there, four, five, six hours, muddy, hard work, carrying your skis up to the hut. And remember, back then, people worked Saturday morning, so they'd be walking up there on the Saturday afternoon, get up there in time for dinner, perhaps, get a few runs in if the weather allowed on the Sunday, and then it was back home. So they are pretty keen and committed. By the later 1930s, the Depression was losing some of its grip and club members were getting back out into the Southern Alps. This was a time when there were still unclimbed peaks in the Southern Alps and, and by the early-mid 
1930s, this peak here, real bastion of a mountain called Mount Evans, was the highest unclimbed peak in the Southern Alps. TTC members went down there to try and climb it. In the end, it was successfully climbed by a group of Canterbury mountaineers, but a TTC party was on the second descent of the mountain in 1937. Tragically, one of them, Norman Dowling, fell to his death on the descent, and the Canterbury artist Austin Deans painted this picture as a tribute to Dowling, and for many years it hung in their club rooms. There were big trips as well, uh, social trips, combined club trips. Here we see members of the Levin Waihupehu Club, the Victoria College Club, and the Tarua Tramping Club and Hutt Valley Tramping Club, all combining together on a trip up to Mount Kapakapanui. This is in 1931. So 12 years after the Tarua Club formed, there was now sufficient clubs for Fred Vossler to consider a national organisation, and he formed federated mountain clubs to advocate for trampers and outdoor recreation and conservation at a national level. So his evangelism had really worked. In just 12 short years, there was clubs throughout the country. It was hard work, sometimes slogging up mountains or carrying your skis up to Kaim Hut, but sometimes it was great fun. Uh, and this is a group at the Chateau, um, probably after a day out in the snow, really enjoying themselves and doing a bit of cross-dressing. In the 1930s, the social activities of the club greatly expanded. The club had a table tennis faction, it had a glee club, it had drama groups, it had a botany group, all sorts of activities. It even had a women's hockey team and a men's rugby team, and they'd play very vigorous matches against the Hutt Valley Tramping Club. Naturally, as most of you will know, in the outdoors you can form strong friendships and it's also a pretty good testing ground for potential partners. Uh, when you're out in the hills sharing a tent, uh, perhaps in bad weather and confined circumstances, it's a real test of people's personalities. And naturally, the Tarua Tramping Club has fostered a lot of partnerships and marriages, some of them very successful, including this prominent one from the 1930s to Alex and Kath Galletly. By the end of the 1930s, the Depression had faded, but now the world was in the grip of the conflict that um, was the Second World War. Naturally, many club members signed up and went off to fight. But it wasn't all fighting. Some of them managed to grab opportunities to climb the pyramids in Egypt when they were serving there. This is Arthur Thompson, who was part of a group known as the Scum, a younger group in the club. Naturally, those back at home, with many people away serving overseas, struggled to keep the club going. And this one was where women really stepped up into the leadership positions of the club prominently for the first time. Here we see Mavis Davidson, closest to the camera, um, serving at Trentham. And she really kept the club going, along with some other women, during the extent of the war. She was quite a remarkable person. A hunter, she became a world authority on seeker deer. Um, she was a mountaineer. She led the first all-woman ascent of Araki Mount Cook in 1953, and she wrote guidebooks as well, so quite exceptional person. Remarkably, by 1944, the club had a huge influx of people. Another 80 people joined, so they were struggling to, to know how to deal with that. By the 1950s, this new cohort of members 
were setting their sights on some of the highest peaks in the world. Here we see Phil Gardner, Graham McKellen, Ethel McCready and Morris Bishop about to set off for the first all-New Zealand expedition to Nepal, 1953. Uh, those of you who know your mountaineering history will know that 1953 is a pretty auspicious year because Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay were with the British expedition uh, to Everest, also in Nepal that year. The TTC group, they were all members, it wasn't an official club trip, but they were all members of the club, set off into this very unexplored part of Nepal, and you can see how precarious it was just even getting into the mountains with these sort of uh, things lashed onto the side of rocks beside huge gorges. But they eventually made their way up into the higher mountains, and they climbed this peak called Chamar, which is over 7,000 metres high, and remarkably, um, they did it without oxygen in alpine style, so quite a contrast to the Everest expedition, which had rows of porters and champagne and wooden cases and, um, and lots more besides. And the mountain Chamar has never been climbed again. If you compare that to Everest, where hundreds may reach the summit every day, it really puts it in context. We had an interesting publishing dilemma that resulted from this, in that um, when we took um, our laid out book to Robbie Burton, who was gonna help us with the printing and publishing, he said to us, do you have any maps in the book? We said, yes, we do have maps. He said, do you have any that show the boundary of China anywhere? And we said, we don't think so. And then we remembered, we had this beautiful hand-drawn map that showed Tibet. Of course, the Chinese invaded Tibet in 1949, even though the expedition was four years later, was still very much known as Tibet. If you print a book in China, which was our intention, um, the Chinese authorities scrutinise any map produced in the book, and they wanted us to change Tibet to China. We felt very uncomfortable about this. We approached the McCallum family, who uh, provided many of the images from the expedition. They also felt uncomfortable about it. Um, our wonderfully inventive designer, Jeff Norman, came up with this solution, um, <laughs> but we didn't know whether that would really fly in the book, and in the end, we had to drop the map. The 1950s was really a period of remarkable activity in the club. Not only was it exploring the high mountains of the world, but it was also building as many as five huts, including a base on Ruapehu, Tararua Hut, twice, because in 1954, the first one burnt down. Uh, the big leader in the club during this period was Bill Bridge, and he rashly promised to have a new hut standing within one year. Uh, and you can see members here working on the block work with Narahoe erupting in the background. Sometimes members would describe seeing boulders, red-hot boulders rolling down at night, so it was quite exciting. Part of Bridges', Bridges um, ability to entice people up there to work in their weekends rather than tramp was taking them up in furniture trucks, which the club hired, and people could travel up there en masse and they'd have a lot of fun sitting in the back, sometimes singing all the way. Of course, not everyone was tuneful, but some of these people would try to make up for what they lacked in tune with volume. Bill Bridge is here, and Joe Gibbs, who built Field Hut and Kime Hut, is on the right. Uh, they look pretty amicable here, having a nice discussion and a cup of tea, but in fact, at the time, the two were bitter enemies, and Gibbs even called 
bridge a bloody bastard because of a conflict over this movement of energy to Ruapehu. Joe Gibbs at that stage was living in one of the huts he built, the Tohiraniko hut in the Tarua Ranges, and he really felt that the club's energies were being there, were being neglected. At the time, the hut was being undermined by river erosion, um, and Gibbs really wanted more effort in there, but he felt everyone was going to Ruapehu for six to eight work parties each per year. In the end, the river claimed the hut anyway, but that pitted uh, Gibbs versus Bridge because they had an argument over where to rebuild Tahiraneko hut. So again, it's that family theme of family squabbles and intergenerational um, perspectives. So that conflict between Bill Bridge and Joe Gibbs is sort of personalised here, but in essence it was something much, much broader than that. What was going on was the club, which from 1919 until the late 50s had been really focused on the southern Tararuas, uh, was switching its horizons, not just nationally, which meant things like building a hut on Ruapehu, but it was actually embracing international opportunities. And this was made possible by relatively dramatic advances in aviation, mass aviation. So people were able to start flying around the world as they hadn't been able to before. And this was uh, epitomised by a trip that was made in 1962 to Antarctica by a Tararua club team. They were invited to go along and do scientific uh, geological inquiry in the area of the Tucker and the Pearl Harbour glaciers. They were flown to their starting point uh, by American plane, but from that point on they used sledges. But this map is interesting for a couple of reasons. You can see with the, the areas they explored with the two dotted lines, but uh, they also did quite a lot of topographical naming. So there's a Mount Tararua there, which I think is... Well, I can't see it on this one, but you might be able to see it there. But more importantly, down the bottom, uh, circled in red biro, is a Mount Watt. And that was named after Brenda Watt. Uh, she's now Brenda Neal, and she's sitting up here today, and it's a delight to have her here. <laughs> And the reason they named it after Brenda, she was the expedition secretary back here in Wellington, was because of its curves. <laughs> so having been flown in, uh, they then explored the landscape by man-hauling these sledges, which seems quite uh, sort of almost Scott-like in the uh, age of motorisation. But uh, that was what they did, and they sort of obviously laden down with equipment and provisions, and it was easy enough to do that when you were uh, walking downhill, as they are here below Toboggan Gap. But when you were going uphill, sometimes <laughs> it could be quite hot work. Uh, towards the end of the 1960s, as the club was celebrating its 50th anniversary in 1969, news came in of, the of a club party successfully climbing Mount Von Van Salentine, the highest peak in Patagonia, which up until then had been unclimbed. And that's uh, in the centre there, and then off to the left is a Mount Tararua, uh, which they also named, of course, as they did in Antarctica. And they climbed a lot of other peaks in the vicinity, as this map by uh, expedition member Dave Leander 
shows. So that this was a very fine uh, present for the club on its 50th anniversary, and I'm happy to announce that the tradition has been repeated uh, overnight with a party from the club ascending successfully to the summit of Mont Blanc. We got an email photograph at 3 o'clock this morning. So that is uh, a great achievement. So the, the club, uh, this aviation sort of boom had uh, mixed blessings for the club because one of the consequences of it was that by the 1970s, many of the sort of most energetic potential leaders in the club were actually overseas enjoying uh, tramping and climbing in exotic locations. And that meant that they weren't at home to offer sort of guidance to an influx of young members, which characterised the early 1970s. So what uh, Bill Bridge, who was still quite uh, preeminent at the club at that stage, did was he invited Tong Young, who is also with us today, sitting uh, four rows up from the front, and it's great to see you here, Tong. He invited... <laughs> He invited Tong to come out of retirement because Tong had been active in the club in the 50s and 60s but then had taken time off to have his own family and we've got Peter here sitting beside Tong, the cause of all that. Anyway, Tong came back into the club and with his friend Tony Nolan, they really set about uh, re-establishing the pastoral aspect of the club and they organised camps up the Otaki River where they'd take these groups of young people and show them how to survive and prosper in the outdoors but they also did things like uh, taught them how to sing as well. By the 1980s, this kind of crisis within the club had become manifest in a different way, and that was that uh, they were increasingly the burden of maintaining the, the club's assets in the hills, and we're talking about 10 or 11 huts, and most of them were in the Tararuas, but there was one, as you know, on Mount Ruapehu, and there was also another one down in the South Island on the slopes of Mount Tapanuku. Uh, whereas in the 1950s, if you wanted to go on a working party to maintain a hut, you had to put your name down on a working list, so popular were these occasions. By the 1980s, there was really just half a dozen of the same old people, and they were getting old, who were having to do this work. And it really was becoming unsustainable. It was difficult to know what the club was going to do about this. However, salvation came in a most unexpected way with the introduction in 1988 of hut fees. Now, of course, many of you will, will remember the sort of seismic uh, shock of Rogernomics and what it did to New, New Zealand society, and nowhere was that more evident than in the hills where uh, a previously cashless uh, environment was violated by the introduction of monetary transactions for accommodation. And you can sort of understand why members of the Terror Tramping Club would be incensed to be asked to pay to stay in buildings that they themselves had uh, laboured to build in the hills. But that's what happened. And yet, in a curious way, it was okay because they understood, the club understood that in return for doing this, they would be relieved of the burden of maintaining their huts and providing new ones. So Doc took over and they charged hut fees, but of course the compliance rate in the Tararuas was the lowest in the country, <laughs> and that included people such as myself and my friend Paul Bradshaw when we stayed in Anderson's Memorial Hut up on the main range in 1988 and left the following morning without paying our hut fees. 
what we didn't realise was that a couple of hours later, Derek Field, a dock ranger from Masterton, who was also a zealot and spent most of that year in the Tararuas ranging around trying to enforce hut fees, had come through behind us, had noticed we hadn't paid, and then followed us up over the top of Mount Crawford, down that long ridge into the Waitawaiwai riverbed, where you can see him extracting the money from Paul. <laughs> By the 1990s, the club demographics was changing. Its membership was getting older, and it was failing to attract younger people. So it needed to try and do something about this. At the time, there was a number of uh, families in the club, and they wanted to break with tradition where one parent would carry on tramping and the other would stay at home with the children, and introduce a family group into the club. And here we see Nigel Smith, the son of Peter Smith and Trish Gardner, on a trip to Nelson Lakes. And the Smiths, along with a lot of other families, the Molyneux and Whiteford families, formed the core of this tramping group uh, in the club. And it was so successful that it accounted for about 25% of all club trips through this period. And they would go off and do all sorts of challenging trips, easier ones when the kids were younger, but as the kids got older, they would go off and do the dragon teeth and things like that. So it was, it was a very successful thing. Didn't necessarily mean that the younger people stayed with the club, they would probably disperse around the, the world, but it gave them a good grounding and it kept these married couples in the club and active. The club also tried to be proactive by encouraging younger people. It made this brochure here that Alan Knowles developed and it also would run displays at the public library and things like that. But did it really matter? Did the demographics really matter? Uh, in the 1980s, a group of women, some of them retired, some of them with grown-up families, decided they wanted to introduce Wednesday walks. At first, um, there weren't too many people doing it, but now it's the biggest amount of activity in the club, bigger than weekends, occurs during midweek. And this means the club's been able to adapt to uh, the membership's needs, which is why it's still going. The club also diversified greatly during this period in the 1980s and 1990s. And this was partly helped by new technology, new forms of recreation. Mountain bikes were becoming widely available in New Zealand in the 1980s and also modern plastic sea kayaks. And these enable different sorts of adventures. And uh, Sarah White and Peter Gates, who provided these photos, were leaders during that period taking all sorts of trips. And the real advantage of both these modes of transport meant you didn't have to carry so much on your back. During the last 15 to 20 years, the club has also had to adapt to the digital age. What did this mean? Very early on, uh, the club developed its own website, and now this is the main portal of the club to the world. It also had to grapple with email communication. Um, and this meant a different way of organising trips. Traditionally, you would come to the club rooms, you would talk to the leader, you would talk about gear. Now you might be just communicating by email. One of the downsides of this was it meant much lower attendance at club room nights, which were Tuesday night in the, in the club's club rooms, an old church that it had purchased in the 1950s. In the last few years, the club has upgraded its club rooms 
to become a real community hub in Mount Victoria. It's now used by other tramping clubs. The Wellington Tramping and Mountaineering Club uses it. There's a fly fishing group, there's a drama group, all sorts of groups. There's now a paraplegic toilet and a wonderful set of stained glass windows that the club's put in there. The club also made the enlightened decision from our point of view to commission a couple of historians to write their history. And uh, here I'm researching through the wonderful taonga in the club's archive. Since the club's inception, it's gathered material, photo albums, and all sorts of stuff. From 1928, it's had a monthly publication, the Tarua Tramper. There's also annuals and all sorts of other things, maps, uh, an unpublished book there by Jeff Wilson. And so Chris and I began in 2015 and spent three months going through the archive searching for material. Uh, we developed a, a big timeline of the club and then from there took our chapter ideas to the club. We're very grateful to have worked with a subcommittee, Paul Maxim, Helen Beaglehole and Alan Wright, uh, shown here meeting to discuss some draft chapters. All this was only possible because of an incredibly generous legacy from a club member, Michael Taylor, seen here in the Ahariri Valley. Michael died on the last day of 2011 on a club trip. He was doing a solo climb of Mount Twilight, which he had already climbed before. He stopped to take a photo and um, fell back and unfortunately fell to his death. He left uh, half a million dollars to the club and also half a million dollars to Federated Mountain Clubs and a significant legacy to Forest and Bird. He was well known for getting out of the hills after a 10-day trip and eating his mouldy sandwiches rather than going to a cafe or having a coffee. But in the hills, he was incredibly generous with his desserts. He would make things like this cheesecake. And Hugh Barr, who took this photo, remembers slogging all the way up to Cascade Saddle four or five hours, getting to the top, and being presented with a huge slice of pineapple that uh, Taylor had carved off after cutting a whole pineapple up there. It's been our privilege to be able to record the club's history and we're very grateful to the club for agreeing to produce such a high quality publication, a hardback. And um, whatever the future holds for the club, we wish it well. We know it's had a very glorious past. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Sean and Chris. Uh, do we have any questions? If we do, let me know and I'll give you the microphone. Uh, kia ora. I, I think it's a fabulous read and I, I thank you to the club for making free copies available to us members. Um, you must have collected a lot more information than you were able to use. Uh, and I, I'm thinking of some stories you must have been told along the way. Um, has there been a, a home found for the extra material? We have um, produced a timeline, a 140,000 word timeline, that includes a lot of quotes, information, um, that's a resource available to the club. It's on that hard drive as well. Uh, where we've recorded interviews with members, that's saved as um, MP3 files and sometimes there's transcripts as well. That's all been passed over to the archivist too. So that information is available to future historians or club members or whoever who might be searching. And you're quite right, the, the challenge with this book always was 
not so much what to include, but what to exclude. There were so many good stories. There was such a rich diversity of material. The problem was, you know, we had to leave really good stuff out, like that, that map of, um, of, of Tibet. <laughs> For political reasons, we had to leave out, but there was lots of other things we had to leave out just because, you know, we had to try and keep the book. It was supposed to be 240 pages. I think it's 340 pages. So, you know, it was just a, an embarrassment of riches, really. Uh, any final questions? As a joint effort between you both, who, how did you work out who did what? Um, well, what, what we did, Lynette, was uh, we would select a chapter to write, and the book is made up of decades for each chapter. So, uh, for example, I did the 1920s, Sean did the 1930s, and those sort of choices were based around our own personal preferences. And then we would give the uh, draft of the chapter to the, well, the first person that we gave it to was Graham Langton, our friend and Alpine history authority. And Graham was great because he's got a great eye for detail, but he's also a big picture person. And he's quite prepared to say to us, well, look, that's fine, but you know, you need to go back and rethink this chapter because your emphasis is too much on X or Y. So he would do that. We would rewrite it, and then we gave it to the uh, subcommittee, and they would have suggestions, and then we would go back and rewrite it again. And so by the time we'd been through all that, the sort of individual chapters melded into a seamless whole, and... Uh, it's a considerable satisfaction to us that nobody can really tell who wrote what. But in, in saying that, we did also make decisions about who wrote what based on our own sort of emotional uh, disposition. So, uh, for example, I'm less certain of the future of the Tauraroa Tramping Club into the 21st century, whereas Sean was certain that it was going to survive. So he's the one who's written the last three chapters, because if I had written those, you know what words are like, you can't hide behind them. It would have become apparent you know, that I wasn't really that confident about it. So that's why he did those. <laughs>